It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it's been the wildest of weeks, with storms Dudley, Eunice and Franklin battering the UK and making it quite a challenge to get out and record the wonderful sounds of nature that you've all been accustomed to. But no matter what, the podcast continues. So welcome to the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast and I'm battening down the hatches in the studio today with the podcast team of Hannah and Jack, who are here. Hello. 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 And we'll be chatting later about all things countryside. Well, welcome to season 11, where we're hearing from voices of the countryside, whether they be the wild songs of nature or the wise words of people who live and work in the outdoors. And this week, we're hearing from a community in Scotland who have recently bought a huge stretch of moorland, woodland and shooting estate from the Duke of Buckleu in order to create space for nature, jobs for local people, and have a greater say in how the land is managed. So we sent Rob York to the village of Langholm, which is just north of the Scottish-English border, to hear about how the people there have made a dream come true in creating the Taras Valley Nature Reserve. I've just arrived in south-west Scotland at a small town called Langham, which is home to the Langham Initiative. And the view from outside the offices was of blue sky, trees running up onto some heathery and grassy bracken-covered hills around the town. And I'm here to meet uh, Angela and Jenny from the Langham Initiative to go and explore what they've been up to. Uh, And the sun's come out, which after all the rain, we've just come up the hill out of Langham and we're on an open landscape looking towards some deep, dark carnivorous forestry, some open moorland, lots of birch and small tree regeneration. And I'm particularly interested in, well, I think the first thing is they should introduce themselves. Who am I with from the Langham Initiative? 
So, hello, I'm Jenny Barlow, so I'm the estate manager for the Taris Valley Nature Reserve. And I'm Angela Williams, and I'm the development manager for the Taris Valley Nature Reserve. So, Jenny, where are you from originally? So, I'm originally from Sunderland, so I'm a Mackham, uh, but uh, moved around quite a lot over the years and done different jobs in land management, um, community development, and sustainability, and just relocated to Langham about two months ago. Right. And Angela, what about you? Um, well, originally I come from Yorkshire. I was born in Leeds and lived there for the first 18 years. But since then, uh, moved around a bit, a little bit like Jenny. But for the last 20 years, I've been up in uh, the Highlands. Um, I was about 17 years living um, on Noydart, working for the community buyout there, and a couple of years in Fort Augustus. Could you tell? Could you tell the listeners? where this all came from. What is the Langham Initiative and what is what is this nature reserve? So we, I can cover a little bit on the Langham Initiative because I think it's a really, um, you know, it, it, it helps to set the story a little bit. So Langham Initiative are a community development trust. They're one of Scotland's, uh, we're one of Scotland's oldest community development trusts. We've been running for 25 years and we were originally set up to help to um, bridge economic decline in Langham following the um, decline in traditional textile industries in which the town was really well um, known for. Um, obviously job losses and just general uh, you know, economic decline so we were, we were created to help to change that and and put the community on a sort of a new course into the future so land managed land land ownership was a natural bridge in terms of what the Langham initiative has been doing um, and then obviously when this land came up for sale it was seen as a really important step for us to sort of take our community regeneration to the next level really and and own the land around the town and help that to become an asset for the community in the long term right right so so beforehand who owned the land? So the land was owned by the Duke of Buccleuch before uh, it came into community hands earlier this year in March. He put it onto the market or did he have uh, an agreement with you to buy the land? What, what, what was the mechanism? And, and also, where did you raise the money? How much? <laughs> so the land came on the market. It was quite a surprise in the community. So the land uh, was announced to go up for sale. The whole of Langham Moor, which is a lot bigger than the, the, the land that is in community ownership at the moment. Um, so it was quite a shock to the community when that did come up for sale. But also it was seen as, um, a, you know, quite a impossible dream do we dare to try and buy this and can we do we shall we try and actually think about creating a community asset here can we actually do it Uh, so the Langham initiative were approached by um, several members of the community and there was a lot of engagement done with the community to decide whether is land ownership something that we could feasibly look at and there was a, a resounding yes so um, we started to take forward a community buyout but before that there was a lot of things that had to be done like business plans and feasibility studies to actually you know it all comes back down to economic you yeah. know economic feasibility and, okay. and economic sustainability in the long term okay well we'll come on to some of that um so we're talking, I think you mentioned earlier on uh, when we were discussing things in the office, is it 5,300 acres? The land that has been purchased by the community is at 
totals 5,200 acres. Right. Um, so that was the, the fundraising for that was quite a phenomenal story, really. Yeah. Once the um, community decided to purchase the land, the campaign went live. We had no idea how we were going to actually, you know, it was a, 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 it was a, it was an impossible dream, and it is a story of hope because in six months, people really believed in the dream that we had to bring this land into community ownership and uh, we raised 3.8 million pounds in six months um, wow. which is pretty incredible stuff yeah. really isn't it <laughs> yeah. oh hang on those birds flying over they sound like siskins to me yes going through the dark skies because suddenly the clouds have come over and they're heading between two sets of trees and sorry, I distracted myself. Angela, please tell us a little bit about um, the buyout. Any tensions? Any any kind of concerns from locals? And um, you know, raising money. Um, it's always hard. Well, I think. I mean, we weren't obviously here when the buyout took place, but from talking to people both within the initiative, but also out in the community as well, I think. I think it's fair to say that there was actually a huge amount of support for the idea of proceeding with the buyout. Um, there was a petition established, and I think in, in literally in less than a week, what was mm -hmm. it, 800 signatures? Yeah. Um, and I think people locally had such, identified so strongly with the land mm -hmm. that that was a real driver for, we've got to take control and manage this and make sure that we keep it for the community for the future it's an asset for the community that's not to say there won't be some people who didn't disagree with it or you know still might not think it's a good idea you, you go to any community buyout or negotiated sale with the community um every community is made up of different views and and i think it's right that we're challenged mm -hmm. and that there are people who don't agree with it because um, it's a big undertaking. We are taking on a huge responsibility. Yes, because of because I think you mentioned earlier that you worked up in West Scotland, Western Scotland, yep. Yep. Um, up at Noydart, and you had what happened there? Because that was also a community that, that buyout. Was, that was a community buyout. That Some was years back ago, in 1999. Um, right. So that's um, what 20, 23 years ago now. And very different situation to the situation we have here here in terms of land ownership. There was absentee landlord, uh, the land and the assets were in a very poor condition and it was the only option for the community to try and take control of its, of its future by um, going through a community buyout at that right. point in time. Right. Um, was it harder, sorry, was it harder because there were more absentee landlords to deal with, whereas here there was only one landlord that you were buying off? I, well, in, in Noidat's case, I think at that time the um, land was in receivership, um, okay. so we were buying it from, I think it was the Bank of Scotland, if I remember rightly. Mm -hmm. So it was a very different situation, but land ownership, its community land ownership itself was still very much in its infancy. So, but again, there was huge amounts of support from within the community because it was about taking control of your future and your children's future um, but no doubt was very iconic there was a lot of people who identified very strongly with the community's struggles yeah. there and who contributed um, to the I think it was £750,000 that right. was the cost of the land and the buildings and the hydro and sure. all the other assets okay just moving over to you Jenny I mean Angela mentioned on that buyout in Scotland, the land was in a poor condition. Here at Langham, the land wasn't in a poor condition. It was, uh, 
some kind of context was that it, it was uh, owned by the Duke of Clue, but it was also subject to a 25-year partnership demonstration project with uh, with the landowners, with Natural England, Scottish National Heritage, as it was. Uh, and also the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust and the RSPB were doing a very interesting project. Was the land in bad condition when you bought it per se? So I think ecologically, um, you know, we've got, uh, to be honest, I mean, as you see here, just over, over to our right, there is a lot of the landscapers, because of that long-term project, we've got a lot of data, we've got a lot of really good um, existing relationships that have really helped with now we've come into community land ownership and, and that's really forged quite a good foundation for us uh, you know to springboard into community ownership what you see in front of us is um you know we've had things like the land management changed underneath that demonstration project so what you've actually got is quite a lot of ecosystem recovery that's started to happen already so you've got you know trees starting to creep back up the hillside and you've actually start to get we're already starting to see a really amazing diverse mosaic of lots of different habitats that are springing up all over so I think what we've got here is a really you know exciting basis for the future for us to be working on in terms of ecosystem restoration but what we've also got is six amazing properties which are a, a, a fantastic asset for us going into the future for that income generation side of things um, well that's obviously important for us that's great because I think we'll go on and we're going to take a, a drive further up into into the nature reserve uh, to go and look at some of the um, some of the properties there. I'm just going to describe the landscape that uh, Jenny was referring to. It's it's there's lots of lots of uh, um, kind of brown, uh, more grass because because we're coming into winter. There's there's old leggy heather. I can see a couple of uh, spruce trees which are in amongst all the birch which are kind of regenerating across this open landscape there's um, telephone wires and posts running away into the distance into the low misty cloud and then there's this thin tarmac road which we're about to drive down to go and explore some of the other aspects of the Langham initiative right we're now driving along there's uh, quite a lot of water on the road and uh, I want to ask Jenny and Angela, what, what would a visitor who wants to come up to Langham to drive across the open landscape, what can they expect to see? Maybe not this time of year, any time of the year. Uh, so I suppose if you're interested in wildlife, we've got um, a nationally important um, hen harrier nesting on the reserve, on the moorland. We've got five different, five species of owls. We've got ancient woodland that sort of creeps right through the river valley and then it re reaches up onto open moorland. So you've got the sort of, in, the, in the, the bottom of the valley, you've got some absolutely incredible ancient trees that you can walk amongst. And then you've got um, up onto the moorland, you get onto the open vistas and then you can look right through, um, the, right along the Terrace Valley and up through into the Southern Upland. So it is an incredibly diverse and, um, you know, a very, very interesting and rich uh, environment to come and just spend some time. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, but in terms of, uh, so, you know, walking trails, getting out and about, you've, you know, an amazing chance to come and see quite a lot of wildlife and see a lot of, um, a very rich, di you know, diverse ha range of habitats. 
great. And Angela, what have you seen up here when you've been here? How, how many months is it or how many years? Oh, we've only been in post three months. Okay, so, three months. We, so we've only been a member of the community for three months. So still very much actually finding our way around because it's such a big area sure, sure. Um, where we're just getting to know parts of it. Yeah. yeah, but I noticed you had two dogs, I think, when we were at the offices. So you've walked them up here. Have you seen any, have you got any particular interests in, in wildlife or kind of trees? I've, my, personal to you? Um, from a personal point of view, I think my interest is more in, if you like, the sort of kind of broader ecosystem. And and that's what's, re to me, is what's really fascinating about this project is that it's a chance. It's not just about a single species, albeit, you know, the hen harriers are incredibly iconic and incredibly important. But for me, it's that chance to enhance and build on the restoration that has started to take place and I think that you know that link to climate change mm. um, it's a fantastic resource you know just watching Kat who's one of our other colleagues out with local school children or local volunteers and getting them engaged in in the land itself and and the potential for that land with a lot of knowledge about the land um, who've worked on it traditionally but that doesn't mean to say that moving forward there are different ways of um, different management that we can look at, um, albeit very sort of low intervention, but we're not about taking people off the land. I think that is just so important that that message is, is, is really understood. Mm -hmm. Right, thanks, Angela. Because uh, ironically, we've just arrived at an old kind of farmstead, which is empty. Which but is I, actually one of the empty ones, yes. <laughs> but I know that you've got. You're going to tell me what you're going to do with it because they're obviously not going to sit here defunct. So let's. Uh, we're going to get out the truck, and um, we've just driven up off the tarmac road across the open the open hill along a rough track and we're now standing in an old farmstead there's some stone walls moss on the ground you can maybe hear the river in the distance what's that um, monument up on the hill so that's the Malcolm Memorial so it's quite an iconic uh, part of uh, Langham Moor Mm. And, and and probably more, more importantly uh, in terms of land connection and cultural cultural value of the land uh, the area that's right in front of us so this kind of um, you know moorland hill is um, an area that where Langham uh, traditionally has marked the boundaries of the common land for the last 250 years through our common riding uh, so you know it just really every time I look up on that hill I just always it reminds me of how important this land is to people and the connection with the land and uh, and that that long long-standing cultural link with the land and how important that is in our plans going forward what was the expression you use there common riding. common riding could you describe what that means so it's and obviously I, I'm not from Langham, so this is, you know, this is second hand, uh, but it, it's, a, it's an annual, um, a huge festival. It's the biggest, you know, it's the biggest thing that happens in Langham through the year. Thousands of people come into the town and um, members of the community um, in, a, in a massive celebration come and ride the common boundaries of the land. Um, and, you know, it's a big celebration as part of that every single year. What time of, what time of year? It's in July. In July. So what, people ride horses or do they yep, ride bicycles and walk as well or is it mainly, is it horse? Hmm. 
on horseback, uh, horseback around the boundary so right in front of us it comes around wow. the hill and round and through through the reserve so it is it's really it's it, you know it's a, just such an iconic part of this landscape um, and I think one of the most powerful things is that that land that's been you know so important to the community for 250 years is now you know this is it's now in legally legally is. community um, and community ownership which I think is you know that's such a powerful symbol of connection with the land so that's um, called beating the, I've just remembered I think in Wales where I live that's called beating the bounds it's it, I think it's the well, same yeah, yeah there's a lot of, sort of yes. ceremonies really similar mm. um, where communities you know have marked their connection with the landscape and and and, and recognize how valuable that land is to your cultural heritage yeah, right. and I think that's you know that, that is it's not I think that's probably where we're not just you know this is not just about ecosystem rest restoration even though that's core to what we're doing the people are central mm. to this um, so the human yeah the yeah. human ecosystem is yeah. part of this absolutely in part of you know the wider well it's all one ecosystem mm. in a way and it's and it's how we're interacting oh that's a that's a wonderful kind of fascinating story so come up to Langham in July to beat the bounds uh, on <laughs> to ride the bounds sorry on horseback and it's very wild looking ground and as the trees I can see a lovely big Scots pine in the distance there which has obviously been there for probably 60 70 80 years and a lot of uh, older trees I think down by the down by the river and those are is that kind of birch scrub a lot of birch and Actually, willow, that looks like willow, the, those kind of light green. Yeah. Um, but let's come back to, back to the kind of farmstead. You've got, did you say six, six on, properties? On, on the land that we have bought already, there are six properties um, on the land. Um, of those six, four of them are rented out, private rented. So we've got um, local families living in four of those properties. And... Obviously, they're going to be there as long as they they want to to stay there. Um, so keeping keeping people on the land is 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 important. Um, the other two properties that we own, one of them you can see just here. This is Crunksbank Farmhouse, and further along we have Crunksbank Cottage. So they're both empty. Crunksbank Cottage, um, when we bought it, it was just in the process of starting a refurbishment programme. So it's at the moment it's kind of gutted inside, ready um, for us to look at completing the, the upgrading for that. Um, and also determine whether or not that's just going to go into the rented market as well or whether or not there's another another use for that. So that decision hasn't been, been taken yet, but we're just looking at the options for it. Likewise with Crunksbank Farmhouse, um, as you can see it's quite a big property, I think it's five bedroomed and we've got a lot of esteadings and outbuildings with it. Um, it's not that long since it's been tenanted but we're not going to be rushing into letting that out because potentially there's a huge amount of potential with this which could be um, from an income generation point of view it could be sort of letting out the steadings for different uses it could be for holiday accommodation it could end up going back into the rented market or we could look at it as a volunteer base um, there's a whole host of different opportunities for that property great thanks but but i am going to ask a rather 
tough question. You spent, uh, or the community buyout cost, uh, was it three million odd, let's call 3. it? 3.8. There we are, 3.8 million. How are you gonna, how does it wash its face? I know you've talked about kind of renting out the property. That doesn't really... What are the other income? How is the community going to earn income to start not just to pay back 3.8 million, but then to start generating income on top of that? Well, we're very fortunate that the 3.8 million does not have to be repaid back. Um, The income was either grants or donations. um, And there's obviously stipulations with, with some of those. Um, but we're hugely fortunate we don't we're not carrying any debt right um so that gives us a kind of a kind of clean slate to start off with so our planning is about looking to the future and generating income and yes you're right housing per se is not necessarily a an income earner we've got four properties that will need constant maintenance um but the properties themselves are in good condition generally um we do have to look at things like meeting epc standards into the future so there's a number of things we've got to consider in terms of investment into those properties but they should wash their face financially and should generate a little bit of return back at the moment the other income is through farm subsidies obviously that's a big unknown for the future and we've we don't know what's going to happen post-Brexit. We don't know the detail. And we've got to balance out income opportunities that with making sure that we're achieving our aims and objectives for the restoration of the land. But then we've got the chance to look at new opportunities for income. Um, we have um, sort of steadings. Um, one of the houses we drove past, Broom Home Shields, um, one of the many suggestions put forward is that we look at um, glamping and camping because we really would like more people to come to the area um, and it's not as well developed from a tourist infrastructure point of view compared to some other parts so this is an opportunity to start building on that and hopefully that then also has benefits for the town that we get more people coming through people coming to the shops to the pubs um, and making use of the facilities in the sound, going to, going to the Clue Centre, just so it's slowly wanting to build up that side of it. Um, we want to look at the restoration of. <laughs> My fault. No, I'm going to. Sorry, I'm going to apologise. I'm going to apologise also because I, I'd. Uh, I thought I'd seen. I thought I'd seen something on the hill, but I. Oh. But I. I but did. I hadn't. But I hadn't seen anything. I actually thought I saw um, a bit of prey, but I was using my imagination because I think they're not here at this time of year. I think they've moved away. But yeah. also something about wind turbines. I, I, I think I'd had a look through all. Mm-hmm. Th- you know, through the business. Is it the business plan? Business plan. That was a business study. Yes. That's it. And I saw kind of mention of you know wind turbine and also We've and also commercial forestry. But you've got some commercial forestry that comes as part of this what about the wind so we had a a study to look at renewable options for the for the whole area and green cat renewables who produce the study for us looked at um they looked at wind they looked at solar um i think they possibly looked at uh, battery storage they looked at hydro so they looked across the whole um the whole breadth of renewable options to 
possible areas were identified um, and they're both further back that way. There was scope for a single wind turbine. Um, I think it was about 800 kilowatts. I might be wrong on that, but it was, that was just for like one, one turbine. Um, but then the other more, what to me is actually a bit more of an interesting option is um, for so, a solar farm. And from a visual impact that I think could be designed so it's actually relatively low, low impact. Uh, bigger capacity I think that was was it five megawatts um, what you mean what what you mean the sun does shine in Scotland yes <laughs> it does indeed and you don't actually have to have the sun shining to generate so um, yeah no you have a look around there's actually quite a few um, solar farms throughout throughout the whole of the UK even further north than here so up, up in Edinburgh I think. yeah all right um, all right there's been no decision taken about obviously the um in the past you've had a lot of financial support through things like the fits program they, what does that stand for um, fit sorry for feeding the, tariffs so it. it was an incentive to install uh, renewable energy and you got repayments back mm. um, that subsidy that financial support doesn't exist anymore so any renewable scheme has to sort of stand on its own two feet and while there are various things that we can actually um, look at to help develop that, this, um, the location of it is going to make it very difficult. There's things like uh, power purchase agreements, right. but we're not near enough a big purchaser to really justify that kind of investment. Okay. So okay. we're not ruling it out and it's definitely got to be looked at. Um, but it's not it's not an immediate surefire win okay. five years ago yes it would have been but not so much now okay but, I, I, oh, I'm sorry. sorry I didn't mean to interrupt oh, you there gone to commercial forestry well yes no well I was just going to set the scene because you can hear we're now walking back uh, along the rough track we've just been out along we've left the truck and we've just got a view across the open moorland it's fairly bleak that's what these uplands of the uk are like it's it's especially this time of the year but it's also quite inspiring and so okay we've been talking about sunshine and energy um, but i can see in the far distance lots of what i would call commercial forestry now i don't think that's on the nature reserve but you have some what i call commercial yeah conifer forestry yes. any We'd, what more of that please we have um 40 Hectares? Yes. Yeah, 40 yeah. hectares of six spruce um, that was planted, I think, probably around 40 years ago, and it's due for felling sort of any time around now. Um, so we're just looking at the options for that as to how we minimise the, the visual impact of undertaking the felling and the impact on sort of like local neighbours, uh, members of the local community who live round about. But financially... Um, it's a very good time to be felling. There's quite a lot of income to be made through selling selling the timber, and that could give us a good um, basis of income to either invest in maybe one of the properties or in the steadings to develop them, or to actually invest in other projects on the land that we own. And then we've obviously got to look at what happens after we undertake any felling as to how we replant and how we manage that piece of land into the future. It's a very small part of the reserve. It's right on the edge of our land ownership. Um, but yes, it gives us it gives us opportunity for the future in looking 
at either different planting regimes, different techniques, um, or different income generation possibilities, you know, 30, 40 years down the line. Yeah. And would you do other country planting elsewhere on the, on the reserve? Yes. You know, kind of commercial tree planting as well, or do you think... One of our biggest projects at the moment is a partnership we've got with the Woodland Trust, who have been an incredible help and got us over the line in terms of funding, um, getting the land into community ownership. So we're looking at a large uh, broadleaf woodland um, creation project, so about 250 hectares just to the land um further up so it, it, just on the outside of the designated land we're looking at a, you know a substantial woodland project which i think we're back to um sources of income and sustainability mm. and we can potentially get carbon income from that woodland in the future so it's an incredible habitat it, and you know but in climate in terms of carbon nature-based carbon capture but it also helps us to in- generate funds as well. I'm just going to ask a very quick mm-hmm. when you say the um, kind of designated land, yes. do, do you mean, the, is that the SSSI, the Science yes. of Special Scientific Interest, as well as it's got another European designation which is the... Uh, it's got a special protection area designation for hen harriers. Right, okay. Well. Right, so that's where the tree planting can't occur because it, it, is, it is an open landscape, that's what it's kind of designated for. I would but, say but probably we would ha- we could plant trees but we would have we're working very closely with nature scott who are the regulator so i think you know that's going to be a really important part of what we do here that we work within that designation but also you know we we have to sort of look at how we can be flexible into the future and talking of which do you i mean i'm going to be a little bit provocative and say (laughs) could you say to the woodland trust i know you like because they are a bit of a campaigning, campaigning organisation just for broadleaves, mix it up with a few pioneer conifers may be required up here because kind of climate is changing. So we need, you know, in this exposed area to have some conifers intermingled with the broadleaves, which can then be harvested. Yes. Uh, and, you know, so somewhat, hopefully that's where maybe Nature Scott, there could be some... Um, you know, flexibility as to the species mm-hmm. um, because they're all important. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. you know one of our goals under community ownership is climate resilience and cli- and you know being adaptable to climate change. And I think you know across not just here, across everywhere, we have to start looking at how our landscapes and habitats are going to be affected by climate change and new pests and diseases coming in and how we can future-proof what we do. So I think that, you know, absolutely agree that you know, we need to be... Cer- certainly where we're doing the, the felling that we talked about earlier, um, when we look at the different options for replanting that area, um, it could... At one level, you could go back and replant it with Sitka spruce. At another level, you could just plant it with broad, broad leaves. Uh, but or maybe be, a mix. But a mix. we're <laughs> going to look at what those different. Well, it is what those different options yeah. are on that spectrum. Mm. So there's no no decision ta- being taken on that, but it gives us the opportunity mm. to actually plan and, and future proof it. Yeah, mm. yeah, great. Um, I, 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 I'm just going to pick up on something. I can't remember one of you said when you did receive the money. There were stipulations from the donors. Are you able to uh, enlighten us as what the stipulations were, yeah. and and are they constraining? Mm-hmm. Well, no. so I'd say on the whole there isn't. The only stipulation we've got is uh, on some of the funding we got from the Woodland Trust is that we would work with them in partnership to create a new uh, the new broadleaf woodland 
on the reserve so that's the woodland I mentioned earlier so that was um, you know um, but one of the amazing things we've got as part of that as well is um, a, a member of Woodland Trust staff is coming in to work with us uh, two days a week so that's bringing in some incredible mm -hmm. support and expertise so well one of the really important things for us under community ownership is that we increase people's contact with nature and uh, and the out and, and the outside and, and wilder spaces so one of the, the most exciting things we've got happening at the moment is the school's uh, environmental education program so since july that's seen every primary school um student out on the reserve doing uh, forest schools activities and contact with nature so you know even just in the last few months since we the team came on board we've been doing some really incredible stuff in uh, bringing bringing communities on board and bringing children to come out and experience the reserve and i think the most important thing about that is that's creating that future legacy for for you know children that they'll, they'll have been here at school and then they become the future guardians of this land those children going to the schools are not just from langham in, inside the uh town area but mm -hmm. also kind of farms children and yep. uh, you yep. know and, and also gamekeepers and yep. and their children and so they're identifying with this land as mm -hmm. well because this you know this area it's very wild and it's quite raw, isn't it? So just going back to the iconic, I think you referred to the iconic species, you know, the hen harriers, um, and you might have a camera on those. They're obviously ground nesting, and there's obviously foxes. I've, I've noticed a lot of deep dark forestry, which is where foxes <laughs> like to live. So a bit of management might be required with foxes if you want the hen harriers. Do you want so I, I think, you know, on with a, a, a an altered landscape like this uh, you know it does need that level of human intervention um you know in varying degrees and i think we never shied away from the fact that sometimes we might have to make difficult decisions about management and um, whether that be herbivore uh, numbers or you know anything like that um, but i think what we're really keen to do under community ownership is if we ever if we do have to look at those kind of things that we have the right evidence we're evidence-led with what we do and we have the right forum set up so that the, so that we can have community participation in those difficult land management decisions which are inevitably going to come up. Mm. And I think we're still on a learning curve of how we do that and, and what, how that decision making happens when we have to come and do difficult things. Right, we're just going to start heading back now to the truck. It didn't rain as we thought it might do. Um, and we're going to oh, we're going to hear about I think it's called stage two which I didn't know about tell us all about stage two of the Langham yes. initiative so yes we're about to uh, try and double the size of the Terrace Valley Nature Reserve uh, so we've got our second uh, second stage purchase our crowdfunding campaign has just launched two weeks ago so we're trying to increase the size of the reserve to 10,500 acres which will be incredibly amazing for landscape scale restoration so we have to raise 2.2 million pounds in six months the land is held off the open market until may for us to raise these funds and so we've already had an amazing amazing response in public donations and uh, private donor pledges so we're really excited and really optimistic about uh, raising these funds to bring that initial that remaining piece of land into community ownership right gosh so 
uh, you've got five and a half thousand acres roughly you're going to double that mm -hmm. to ten you've got to raise quite a chunk of money by may 20 2022 um and the local community are obviously uh, are going to be part of, wow i mean that what <laughs> what a journey yes we're a small community development trust with very big ambitions but it's starting the journey that we Yes, it's finishing the journey that we started a couple of years ago. It was always the intention to buy the ten and a half thousand acres. Mm -hmm. So we were very pragmatic when funding um, the sort of, kind of funding um, stipulations meant that we could only go ahead with the first purchase of five thousand two hundred acres. So well, yeah, we're just going to start. Yeah, start the journey and of the. I suppose the vision for the land that would mean this would really does mean that we can look landscape scale at what we're trying to do. So from the headwaters of the terrace, the river terrace, extensive peatlands leading down right into the river valley and right down to the woodlands and the moorland that we're in now. So we we get that opportunity to be really big about the solutions that we're looking at. Got you. Any okay? Any good tips for a community buyout anywhere in the UK, not just Scotland? Any? Any top tips? Doing a community buyout is um, a big undertaking. It's a big responsibility. Um, and I think you've got to really know what you're taking on board. You've got to know that the community are behind you. You can't do it in isolation. Um, we're lucky in Scotland we can access Scottish Land Fund. Obviously, there's not an equivalent, I don't think, in, in England. Um, but the benefits it can bring and you know owning, owning land gives gives you a kind of power because you you can actually make a difference and that's absolutely huge okay you're right so the stage two yes you'll be you'll be you'll be um hoping to purchase the whole catchment of where the river just here in the background coming down the valley you're going to be purchasing or wish to purchase um uh, the upper catchment, which is a lot of peat. Mm -hmm. And you, did you say there's some uh, hefted, can you describe hefted yep. kind of sheep flocks and also farmers living up there? Yes, so we've got a, a working sheep farm um, and a shepherd who is uh, employed by Buckley at the moment. So if we're successful with that land uh, purchase, uh, the current member of staff would transfer over to the community, um, you know, under... Um, current regulations so we're really excited about that because it would bring a lot of expertise about land management and you know just that connection with the land again we were talking about that earlier we can bring that on board with the team which is going to be really really important to what we're doing um, and 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 I think you know we can't talk about sheep farming in uplands without mentioning the fact that we you know we are in a like many other farming um communities and upland uh, land managers we're in a big transition in terms of agricultural subsidies so i think you know as a as a community landowner and as a you know we've got to make this economically sustainable into the future we've we're just going to be bridging that transition in terms of how the what the land looks like and how that's managed and how we do that into the future so mm -hmm. it's some elements are uncertain but we're really you know optimistic that we can bridge that transition together that's great. Well, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Jenny and Angela. We're going to head back to the office, but it's been a really interesting insight uh, as to this community buyout. And thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So there we have it, a local community buying the land around their village in order to take more control of their lives. Uh, Huge thanks there to Jenny Barlow and Angela Williams for taking Rob around parts of Langholm. It's a huge place and very best of luck with their future plans where they're hoping to buy or double the size of what they're now calling the Taras Valley Nature Reserve. All those interesting variety of shooting estate, moorland, woodland. That seems to be something that's happening in many parts of Scotland. I recall last summer I went to a sint where I climbed mountains and went fishing in an area that had been bought by the local community and the really strong signs that they were creating businesses, making a future for themselves from land that perhaps you know, had been largely devoted to forestry or shooting. So very interesting changes. Well, from the wilds of the Scottish borders to the relatively calm atmosphere of the podcast studio. Um, Jack and Hannah, lovely to see you again. And we're actually here in person, which is both wonderful and slightly disconcerting because we've had to, <laughs> had to remember how to do small talk. It's not, not very Over the past two years, we've largely seen each other through the medium of um, online video. So just for those who are new to the podcast... Jack and Hannah help both create and produce this piece of audio every week. And I'm extremely grateful to their help and support. And also gives us a chance to chat and reflect about what we've just listened to. So what did you think? I mean, if you had a chance to buy a piece of land and turn it over to a local community, where would it be? I think I'd probably have a go at Cornwall. Yeah, well, I think that um, anything that is giving sustainable jobs to rural communities that aren't necessarily dependent on tourism is a good thing. So something that is sustainable year round and supports people living in places that they love and creating happy and uh, stable communities is a good idea. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think with Langholm, they were definitely keen to attract, or they are definitely keen to attract young families and really get that sort of energy and life into into rural communities. And Jack, is there anywhere that's... uh... Well, I've got an interesting point when I I thought about what to bring up. I've, I've kind of got near me the opposite of this. I live quite close to a very wealthy man and he owns a big estate near me. But he's also recently, I think, been buying bits of land around it that's kind of grown his estate. Consolidating his land, okay. But in a way, those bits of land that are going up for sale, I think he for him is easy to buy. He can just buy it straight away. I think it's too much and there's not enough people near it to do a community fundraiser for, to buy it. So in a way, is it better that he's buying it up which is then stopping, because where, where I am is very much, there's a lot of development going on. Is it preferable that he takes it over and it becomes part of his area, but it remains as a green space, or it can be bought by a housing developer and suddenly that space that was wild and green suddenly becomes another built-up area? Gosh, that's a 
really tricky one. I think um, you know, access to the public, it, it's almost it's great if it's turned over to nature and made wild, but if no one can then go and walk there, what's the benefit to the local community? And it, I think there's a massive difference to, in the southern and south of England to Scotland where it's sparse, sparsely populated. Mm-hmm. There's not a demand for developments quite so much whereas you know on the edge of bristol on the edge of london wherever all these areas it's impossible for anyone to buy land i mean i've occasionally sort of thought i'd love to own a little bit of woodland or Mm. buy a little bit of plot so i can have a somewhere to grow veg it's prohibitive expensive even to buy a small patch of land so and then there are there are lots of stories coming in about welsh farms uh in particularly powys that are being the the two the land is now too expensive for other farmers to buy it, and it's being bought by large kind of corporate mm. bodies who are then growing things like Sitka spruce on it, which they can get carbon credits and things like that. It's a big something we're going to investigate in the magazine because it's it, it's all legal and all fine, and but is that are we losing land to to these sort of random outside investments and local communities not getting a say in what happens. Well, we'll look into it on a later mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, maybe go walking and walking with communities who can't afford to buy their land and some of the threats that they face. Talking about threats we faced when we were in the studio uh, and we've been sheltering from storms. I think there's been 11 days solid of storms. I know it's, we've had calm for the last couple of days, but... How did you did you lose any tiles off the roof? Any trees down in, on on the Gower Estates? Talking, no, talking well, land we were, Well, I was I was fine. Um, some of the houses around us lost a few tiles. The whole of Gower was in the red zone on Friday, so we were all a bit nervous. But the period where the wind was the like most fierce. The wind was coming from sort of the right direction. The prevailing wind was coming from the way it usually comes. So most of the trees have grown in a way that means that they are strong in that direction um, and wind defences have already been built the buildings have been built in a way that means that they are prepared for that kind of thing so that was okay like later on in the day when the wind moved around that was a bit more scary even though the wind speeds were slower it felt very strange and we felt quite exposed but it was fine. Like the weirdest thing that happened really was two bridges closing. The 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 the, 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 the motorway bridges yes. over the seven. Yeah, yeah. England was cut off. <laughs> well, we are we are slightly attached by land. <laughs> yeah. So you couldn't come back to. Well, we're in Bristol now, so you couldn't come back yes, to work. Yes, my plans were delayed, but I'm here now. So oh, very good. Yes, very good. Jack, any any storm damage? Oh, Your hair's yeah. looking good. Well, <laughs> I've got a haircut this evening, actually. But uh, for me. I think I got away with it. I was in the red zone, the danger zone, if you will. I was prepped. I was like, I've just bought new fences. Oh, please don't go, oh, let these no. go down. But I was kind of prepping to see a wheelie bin fly past the window. The only flying debris I saw past my window the whole day was one leaf. One area. Um, I think we must have just, whether the angle we were at or where we were, we might be in a dip or something. The big storm when we were in red, the red zone, was not as bad as probably the one that was it in the night or the two nights before? Dudley. Dudley. So I think I, I think we kind of got away with it a bit. The, uh, well, the downside was it just was really difficult to get out. And I felt very confined to barracks for a while, particularly as I was itching to get out and do some recording. And it's a time of burgeoning sounds and signs of spring. I, I've seen 
celandines in the hedgerow now. Have you seen uh, celand- really brilliant, lovely little yellow flowers at the foot of the hedge, like little stars that come burning out. So really sign of gorgeous spring. The daffs are coming out, so life is life is um, really exciting. Another really exciting thing has been that two podcasts ago, we had Jack Cornish from the Ramblers on, and we talked to Jack. You raised the the issue of footpaths uh, having to be registered by 2026. Since we were on air with Jack, and Jack was had some really good stuff to say about access to the countryside and and, and the rights of walkers and visitors uh, to the countryside. But the Ramblers and all the people who've campaigned to have that deadline removed, really, because it was a bit of an artificial deadline to say all paths must be registered by this time after existing for thousands of years. The deadline's been scrapped, which is fantastic news for all of us who love exploring the countryside. We don't have this great dark cloud of people were rushing to to register. There's a really complicated bureaucracy with registering footpaths. And it feels like a bit of a victory for those who think that access is a, is a fundamental right to for our physical and mental health and just for the sheer joy of living. So I'm massive congratulations to Jack and the Ramblers. I think that's 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 a wonderful thing, and hopefully we'll have Jack back on with champagne and, and crisps <laughs> and whatever. You know, hopefully we'll have some more good news stories about access and and fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Yeah, one of the great joys of having these lovely podcast chats is we get to hear from you, the listeners, and we have a regular sound of the week, which is a great chance for anybody around the world to send in some audio that they've recorded of the natural world. And we don't mind what it is, so long as it's decent. (laughs) Um, And we have some decent, really decent things this week. Um, And you can send any sounds to me, Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. I love to get them. And we've got one here from Tim Partridge. And he says, uh, he sent in three, actually. And we're going. We're not going to spoil you by having them all at once. But he's recorded some waves on the shores in Dorset, uh, a robin singing in the evening, and this one, which is I absolutely love, a short recording of some market traders calling out their wares. We go direct to the beach, growers, any bowls of green, all markets of this bananas and bowls. We got purple, green, and white cauliflower, pounding this bananas and bowls. Looky, looky. It's just brilliant. Love it so much. It's sort of poetry. There's um, there's rhythm and just that. Obviously, they do it over and over and over again. I mean, if you've ever been to a street market, the it's. But it's just lovely. I loved all the different the different voices there and the real sense of the bustle of the market. So thanks so much, Tim. Um, and you know, that's a great example of a delightful sound of the week. And interesting too, because it isn't just, not just, but it isn't uh, nature sounds. We've got actual human voices in there. I think sometimes we can forget that people live in the countryside. They're as much a part of it as the animals and plants. And that was a great one. Yeah, really, really excellent. Jack, traditionally, you are the keeper of the podcast post bag. Have you had a delve of late? I have had a delve, and we have a letter. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and it's come from overseas. Oh. Even better. Uh, we've got a letter here from Ryan Olesey. Uh, yeah, Olesey. Yeah, I think, I think so. I'm pronouncing that right. And he says, thank you from the North Woods. 
Earlier this week, I stumbled upon the podcast and I felt compelled to reach out and say thank you for producing such a phenomenal podcast. Uh, I'm writing this email from the small town of Grand Marais, uh, Minnesota, which is located along the snowy north shore of Lake Superior. A great name. I've just got home from my morning walk along the Superior hiking trail where I saw fresh moose, wolf and pine martin tracks in the snow. While on my hike, I was listening to Kenneth Stephen beautifully narrate his hike on the island of Seal. I had such a fun time listening to how drastically different his experience in nature was from mine due to geographical differences, yet also seeing so many parallels in our communication with wildlife and observance of how the seasons impact our respective environments. Interestingly enough, my local radio station, WTIP, produces a similar podcast to yours, but about our sacred protected Boundary Waters canoe area. If you ever want to hear what hiking, ice fishing, winter camping or other peaceful outdoor activities look like in our area, it's worth a listen. Well, great. Thank you very much, Ryan. That was, well, I'm always interested in listening to another outdoors podcast. We're not the only one. And what a lovely thing to say about about our own about our own recordings. It's great that he, he sort of, he's brought up a point of, even though he's in a completely different geographical location to Kenneth and to us, there's still that re- relatability, which I think is quite interesting. That yeah. you would think there there couldn't be much to relate about in the two different areas, but obviously there are. Well, I love the fact that people in Minnesota are listening to us warbling on about <laughs> our own beautiful British countryside, and Kenneth up on the Isle of Seal, who will be back later in the year for more gentle meanderings with that beautiful voice he has. So thank you, Ryan. Um, and as I say. We love getting emails, particularly positive emails like that. Um, but tell us what you think about the podcast. Tell us what you think about places we can go, things to listen to, particularly later in the year when obviously we're really excited because we've got the whole of spring in Britain coming up where it's my favourite time. We can get out and record all the bird song and just share the joy of burgeoning flowers, butterflies coming out, all those sort of things. But later in the year, when it all quietens down a bit, we, we, you know, we'll be thinking about how else we can share the countryside and and get across the moods and atmospheres, perhaps without all those nature sounds. So thoughts welcome. But for now, it's goodbye from the podcast studio and the three of us. Thank you so very much for listening and join us again next week for another adventure the great British countryside.